Today, our Marvel vs. DC series continues. Did you say X-Men? Did you say Doom Patrol? Yes, I did, and so many people have been saying it for so, so, so very long. What is it about these two concepts, these teams, these characters, that has drawn instant comparisons since I was just a kid? It continues today. We examine it. We bring you angles that you have never possibly considered, given the similarities of these concepts, their publication dates, their villains, their reboots. It is a packed episode. We also discuss San Diego Comic-Con, why no one else will be able to duplicate, match, or host anything even remotely resembling Hall H. X-Men, Doom Patrol, Hall H, all on today's all-new Observations. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Rob Observations. I am Rob Liefeld, your host. These, in fact, are my observations on comic books, cartoons, pop culture, all things sci-fi fantasy. It's what I have devoured since I was a wee boy, uh, a young child of 1973, 1974, pulling this stuff off. Very squeaky, uh, in some cases rusty, spinner racks, and some of my favorite comic book uh, uh, publishing holes that would also be translated in 1973 to 7-Eleven liquor stores, uh, you know, food marts. We didn't have no comic stores. At least I didn't, not in Orange County, not when I was growing up. Started this podcast to walk you through my personal journey as comic books, uh, took me into my, my career. I, I became a fan instantly. And then uh, by the time I was a teenager, I was writing and making and producing comic books, and there's been no looking back ever since. Recently returned from the awesome 2022 edition of the San Diego Comic-Con. They used to call it San Diego Comic-Con until like about a decade ago, and I guess it was like Comic-Con International. I'm never going to really truly understand uh, the, the, the rationale behind why that went the way it did, but they call it Comic-Con International now. And, uh, and everything's a Comic-Con. Back when San Diego Comic-Con happened, there was maybe two or three major shows in the across the country. Now, there's two or three shows in Texas alone every week. I look at the calendar, I see these shows. Comic shows, comic conventions are a huge business, but as I said before, none will compete with Comic-Con. That was just really reiterated to me once again during this 2022 edition, and I'm going to tell you why. It really is wrapped up in a, in a, in a nice little nutshell that is Hall H. Hall H, I think, maybe was probably the, the, the part of, of San Diego that was maybe being taken mo most for granted. It was always awesome. It always featured the best and brightest, the biggest uh, uh, stars and minds and, and all of the major players from all of the giant superhero productions, whether they were under Warner Brothers or under Marvel. Marvel always closed it out on, on, on the Saturday night 5 o'clock slot, and they did it with huge panache and generally a, a, a giant amount of fireworks. And, uh, you know, Fox got it a couple times in the years that Marvel abdicated that slot and didn't show up at all. Fox was able to take it given that they had so many of the Marvel properties. So Marvel was always a featured player closing out the day at Hall H., over the years, other shows have tried desperately to work with the studios 
and you should know this behind the scenes some of the big shows that are rivals to comic-con have tried to um you know to work with them to see if uh they could you know facilitate the talent uh feature them in any way shape or form because they want that marquee aspect that that only comic-con has been able to deliver now there's some international shows the 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 brazil show for sure is is a giant feature it's had Ryan Reynolds, it's had Gal Gadot, it's had um, all, all the big players in the recent years, especially prior to the pandemic. But in the States, the 50 states, the only one that brings you the show on par with the, 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 the power that Hall H has is located in San Diego. And it's called Hall H for a reason, okay? And, and I mean, I'm, I'm not kidding you. From the Midwest to the Far East Coast, the biggest shows have worked with the different studios with, with, the, with the Hollywood studios and reps to try and get big name, uh, you know, talent, directors, stars out to create the equivalent, to create the equivalent of what's going on, you know, in Hall H at Comic-Con. And it's, it's, it's not for a lack of trying. It's not for a lack of trying. I'll tell you right now, here's a, you know, just a peek behind the curtain. I can tell you up front, it's the studios who do not want to incur those costs because, of course, you know, if you think that San Diego is paying to fly an entire cast or put them on a train and put them up at all these um, hotels, they simply can't. San Diego cannot give you, cannot afford that luxury. It falls on the studios who have to um, build it into their promotional budgets and uh, and, and marketing. And, and trust me, obviously, I've had a, a, a two films that have had their casts show up. And I know for a fact, um, you know, in talking to the managers and the reps and some of my um, friends of the different people who are involved, I mean, it's like the, the, the studio, in most cases, especially if you're less than the title character uh, or, or less than the A-list featured player, and if you're a bit person, like a, a secondary, and I'm not saying a, 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 I mean, when I mean a bit person, like, like maybe like the... Th- fourth most important person in the cast. You know, it's going to be a heavy-duty negotiation between the studio and you, your reps, with how many nights they're going to give you in a hotel, what kind of accommodations are they going to give you, is it plane, is it train, is it a car, that uh, this is all real stuff that goes into the fact, uh, it goes into the actual, you know, obtaining of the talent and getting it there. Now, look at Hall H on, on, on a, on a uh, you know, on a, on a week where a weekend where you're going to see, you know, Dwayne Johnson show up as The Rock, you're going to see, you're going to see, uh, you know, Zachary Levi show up as Captain Marvel slash Shazam. You've got Keanu Reeves there for both Berserker and John Wick. You've got the Walking Dead cast, Rick and Michonne. I mean, that, that's their character names. I mean, Andrew Lincoln, boom, back, huge. Okay, Comic-Con isn't flying those people in. That's on AMC, that's on Warner Brothers, that's on obviously that Marvel dais, the entire Black Panther cast, the entire Guardians of the Galaxy cast, the entire She-Hulk cast. That is Disney and Marvel who are, you know, footing the bill for that. So when another show in either the Midwest or the East Coast says, hey, can we duplicate that? They go, well, we've already done Hall H. We've already done San Diego. It's going to be really difficult for us to justify bringing all eight or two or one of these cast members out to your stage because generally, you know, they feel like they've done their job. They got their juice. They got their headlines. They got their hits, their clicks. Um, you know, the studio definitely has priorities when it comes to marketing and and promotions. 
And I'm telling you, Hall H is, you know, the surefire thing. There are other award shows, obviously, but the Academy Awards is always held in the highest regard in regards to award shows. There's tons of, you know, music award shows, but the Grammys are always going to get the biggest uh, eyeballs, the most eyeballs, the biggest ratings. And so Hall H is absolutely secured at this point in time. And, and trust me, I have seen the behind the scenes, the, 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 where, where, where some of the East Coast and Midwest uh, shows can benefit is when the stars are in the backyard. If a star of a production happens to live in New York City and has a movie coming out, possibly, uh, you know, in, in the late fall or the early following calendar year, especially if these shows are in the fall, it's it's a much much easier to convince them to you know take the car from their high rise in Manhattan and show up at you know an East Coast show whether it's you know in Connecticut or whether it's in Brooklyn Jersey the heart of the city you know it's just uh, that that that's an easier negotiation but so many of these players also you have to realize when Hall H occurs productions are just ramping up most of these people aren't filming. Some of these shows, when they get into the late summer, early fall, they're shooting. So to take them and, 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 you know, especially if it's a long flight across country, a five, six hour flight both ways, they're going to have to take them off of a Friday and get them back on a Monday. And now they're exhausted. That talent is exhausted because you have to take them off whatever they're shooting, whether it's their show or their movie. So the other thing about Hall H that it has on everybody is in July, the major productions aren't back up and running so their schedules are freer again once you hit late august through the fall these this talent is booked they're making movies they're shooting tv shows so the cost goes up exponentially in order to you know get them across the country to an east coast or a far midwest show that's just that's just the facts. So I hope that's a little bit of an eye opener. You know, I, I don't I don't regularly read about this or see this covered on the on the different YouTuber YouTube sites. But there again, there's logistics. It's just logistics, and it comes down to time, money, and availability. Your time, money, and availability is much uh, uh, more monetized in the best capacity for the studios during mid July during Hall H. Again, they're not shooting. They're not working. And here's the other thing: most of this talent lives in California, and if it's not, you know, it's it's um they're more than happy to come to Hall H because Hall H means something, okay? But they're certainly not, you know, flying in and out of a production. Uh, again, I'll, I'll so, so I can take you back to 2015, the Deadpool cast. Nobody was actively shooting at that time. Ryan was not shooting a film that month. His uh, wife was. Blake Lively was shooting a film, but he was not. And going down the list with most of that cast, they were all free, they were all open, and the majority of them were living on the West Coast. So then it becomes a much more affordable affair for 20th Century Fox to get them all from Los Angeles to San Diego. Much harder in that case to get them from Los Angeles to a Midwestern or an East Coast location. So, I mean, there, there, there's, just, uh, there's just some absolute practical logistics that deal with Availability windows, time, and, and again, money. The studio has already probably budgeted Hall H into the equation, and so there's less left over because, again, this uh, uh, no show that I know of could afford to uh, fit the bill on 12 casts on major movie and television productions. So one last thing about San Diego, and I'm going to say this, and it's weird. 
I feel like because most of my success in comics has come with Marvel, and I, my, my passion for Marvel has come through on this show, so many of you um, perceive that I favor Marvel over DC. There's more Marvel product that I you know, favor over the time of my you know, fan life. But certainly, if you'd grab me in 1983 to 1985, I had more DC Comics, you know, that I was excited about. I, I have wildly uh, kind of said over and over again that The Avengers was not a book I liked in the in the 80s. The the X Men hit a really big skid following Paul Smith. I I, I feel like John Romita Jr. Um, has is a great street level artist. Daredevil, Punisher, Spider-Man, that stuff really, I think the, the more street level, the more you can go Daredevil, the more you can go uh, Punisher, the better. Kick-Ass, Kick-Ass is the perfect John Romita Jr. vehicle. It's extremely street level. Uh, you know, the higher you go, the more you put him on a team book like an Avengers or, or like an X-Men. I don't think he's necessarily cut out. I don't, I don't think that's the strength of his skill set. And so when he came on... Uh, when he came on the X Men, I was a kid, and all my friends, we just we we were not excited. We, I speak as a teenager, and I would hang around the store. I would talk to the other people in the store. When Paul Smith left, I mean, you went from Cockrum, John Byrne, Dave Cockrum, Paul Smith, and then John Romita Jr. And I've maintained a lot. I think Chris Claremont checked out. I don't think it was he recognized that it wasn't a great fit. It took about three years, but then Mark Silvestri comes in, and Chris Claremont, boom, jolts again, and he is so excited. And I just you know the the, the Jr. Jr. era of X Men was not uh, a strong point to me for that book. So, so it's, for me, as a fan, the X-Men was at its weakest. The Avengers was not a book I was enjoying, um, the stories or the art. I mean, I had, I had a six-year six run of excellent stories by David Michelini, Jim Shooter, Steve Englehart, illustrated by the best in the business, either by John Byrne or George Perez. I mean, come on, how spoiled was the Avengers fans, you know, from 1975 to 1981? And then... then the top talent didn't do the Avengers books before, and I've covered it briefly in a couple of my podcasts. I'll just give you the short answer. The royalties had started kicking in. The The talent was making much more money drawing the X-Men books. So therefore, all the talent wanted to do X-Men books. And so the Avengers, which used to be a showcase for the biggest, best names, now took second fiddle to you know the X-Men in terms of priority. And I mean, imagine had Paul Smith wandered in and done a year on the Avengers. We are talking about it a completely different era. But he wandered in and he did a year on the X-Men that was transformational, a fan favorite. I have talked to people who will look you straight in the face and say he is their favorite artist. That Paul Smith era was so resonant. It influenced everything that came after it. Arthur Adams does not exist but for, you know, those issues. He, uh, he, he took a huge, huge influence from Paul Smith's work. Along with all, as we've covered in our dedicated, I think it was early in, this, in the first season, our Art Adams uh, about kind of career management, longevity, and, and, and you know, uh, the, the fact that he put together this one epic run in 1985 where everything that he'd been wor working on for years was put out in one single year that gave you about 12 issues worth of work by Arthur Adams and it cemented him. It was incredible. Uh, but, but so much of what he was putting out, especially when you got to the X-Men, you're like, oh, I can see that this is really influenced by Paul Smith, who I loved. And, uh, and, and he had Michael Golden and Michael Kaluta and Walt Simonson. The thing about art I like that I do myself, that many do, I hang, I wear my influences on my sleeve, openly on my sleeve. So the fun part uh, uh, about thinking about the books that I was buying in 82, 83, 84, 85 is they were mostly DC Comics. 
I wasn't, like I said, the Defenders wasn't doing it for me. Captain America wasn't doing it for me. Spider-Man wasn't doing it for me. The only two books that stood out at that time, and that would be the tail end of the John Byrne Fantastic Four era and the tail end of the uh, Walt Simonson Thor era. Those were two visionary books. But again, of all the comics that Marvel was putting out, those were those were the two bright, shining stars to me. Uh, Byrne was doing Alpha Flight at the time, but I, I, after his first year on Alpha Flight, and I've been there, I can tell you as a writer-artist, you know when you've run out of stories. And, and what I've tried to learn is to get off get off the book. When you're out of a story, get off the book, move on. If you only had one story to tell, tell that one story and move on. Don't linger when you don't have a whole lot to say. John Byrne has said he left Alpha Flight because he felt like it didn't fulfill uh, the, the, the expectations that he had set for him himself and I think he had one great single year saga and then afterwards I was just it was wildly inconsistent from a storytelling perspective and he moved off and his six or seven issues of the Hulk that he did afterwards were fantastic I wish he had done so much more than that but he then goes and leaves to DC where all my money had been going because DC had higher price books um, nicer formats, deluxe comics. I bought multiple Legion of Superheroes titles, multiple Titans co comics. I loved Justice League, never missed it. I had Superman books that I was buying. I was buying Blue Devil. I was buying Camelot 3000. Uh, yeah, Camelot 3000. I was buying The Warlord. There were so many DC comics that I poured my money into. And in fact, if you were to go through my favorite franchises in comics, it goes X-Men number one, Legion number two, boom. I mean, Legion of Superheroes is my second favorite franchise in the history of comics. It is published by DC Comics. I love DC Comics. DC Comics in the last 20 years has been full stop a hot, hot, hot mess. I have done an entire episode on the behind the scenes of the craziness of the DC 52. Look, look that up. I was invited in. I was asked to take over three books. I was asked to turn the sales around. Good news. I did. But by looking, you know, getting behind the curtain of the wizard and seeing the chaos... I just can't believe Dan DiDio lasted as long as he did. I, I, he should have been shown the door years and years before. And now, it's utter chaos. And, and what I'm getting to is, like, it is just inconceivable to me. I touched on this, but I really, it's inconceivable to me after I, I did Thursday and Friday and Saturday and Sunday of Comic-Con that DC Comics had no presence. I, t I, I, I talked about it here. They had uh, set the standard for booths and convention displays. And then you know, and expanded over the years and became the marquee attraction of the floor. Um, in about 2011, Marvel stepped up and became a, a significant rival to everything that DC was doing. But I mean, was there a year that, that, that DC put, put Ben Affleck, Gal Gadot, and, and, and Henry Cavill on the floor to sign? There was. I mean, it was game, set, match when Marvel would then get Chris Hemsworth, Chris Evans on the floor. I mean, these were dueling giant empires and this year uh no dc image comics kind of moved into that slot boom studios idw marvel expanded and and and, and, and like launched branches off their giant island that it was already taking the same real estate that dc was and they put like other like extension islands of their own huge display there's no dc comics no dc comics i repeat dc did not have a booth representing them at a show that they have always had a booth representing them. And look, new ownership, whatever, here's the deal. Whatever reasons that they did not have a booth fall on the lack of leadership somewhere down the line, somewhere within Warner Brothers, somewhere within DC Publishing, someone did not make the argument effective enough. I have heard the most obscene, ridiculous, 
uh, theories like to avoid certain toxic fandoms. Come on, that's that's ridiculous. Every every you know intellectual property. Every you don't think Star Wars has you know fandom that can be toxic, and they had giant displays, Star Wars displays all over the place. I'd say you know five different heavily themed Star Wars Center and a dedicated Lucasfilm huge. I I, I videoed it with all the stormtroopers, with Boba Fett, with Mandalorian, Kylo Ren, giant screen playing this stuff. The minute, if DC puts up a giant display, even if they put up 50% of what they used to have and they run the stuff on the monitors and they have all their statues and they have all their displays, I mean, then they're kicking all sorts of righteous ass. I mean, they're DC freaking comics. They're the number two comic book publisher in the history of comic books, and they completely seeded all that real estate and were not seen, visible, in on any way, shape, or form, in any way, shape, or form, on the floor of San Diego. And, and I can talk around it, but I'm also not on, you know, the payroll, and I don't need them to hire me to draw Superman. Should they? Yes, of course they should. And Legion and all that stuff, but but I don't need them to. So, so I'm not, you know, I'm not... Uh, in any way, shape, or form intimidated about telling you that I think it is like ridiculous that they did not have a presence on the floor and whoever either failed to make that fight or lost that fight, then then that's on you and you should have done better. And and I, I am just so completely just blown away the DC Comics and you go, Lightfields, you're piling on. No, I'm just telling you how it is. I'm telling you how it is. Don't make this DC versus Marvel. Why not? Why not DC versus IDW? Why not DC versus Image Comics? Why not DC versus Boom Studios? They all had booths down there. So let's sidestep this about any ridiculousness that I'm somehow making this between Marvel and DC. DC did not have a booth, but the number three, four, five, six publishers showed up. They represented. So something went terribly awkwardly wrong. And here's to DC Comics getting it right next year and getting back on the floor and doing better. And, 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 and giving me some of my favorite franchises back. In the mid-2000s, the early 2000s, they did, a, they did a Legion of Superheroes Saturday morning show. I made sure I watched it all the time. This was before DVRs. I had to watch it live. I think the second season I had a DVR, and I was able to record it. But you guys, I love DC. I love DC movies. I love DC cartoons. I have DC statues. I'm looking at several of them as I'm talking to you. Batman Beyond is right on my shelf. I love Batman Beyond. I think it is one of the most brilliant animated series of all space and time. So don't give me this crap that I don't love DC. I love DC. I want DC to be treated better. It's hard to watch. Now today's subject as we pivot towards our Marvel versus DC series, I've, I've, I've read a little about what other people have written about this, but I promise you that no one will go as in-depth as I do with you on this subject today. We did Aquaman versus Namor, and ironically, we did Aquaman versus Namor in part one of our Marvel versus DC series because there are so many misnomers, misconceptions, just flat-out myths and lies about the influence that Marvel and DC have had on each other and who did what to whom and who originated what. And some of them don't have concrete answers, and we're going to look as best we can to, to find concrete answers. But on our first installment of this one, I covered Aquaman versus Namor, comma, the Submariner. Look, I, when doing research on this, wandered into some chat rooms, some discussion groups, and they're like, come on, man, Marvel's always biting off DC. I mean, they, 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 they bit 
you know, Aquaman, they, they made Submariner, you know, to imitate Aquaman. Again, if you listen to my previous podcast, you found out that that is absolutely impossible as Namor predates Aquaman by almost full th- three full years. So when people tell you that Submariner is an imitation of Aquaman, you can tell them by listening to this show and give them the dates. Prince Namor came out in 1939. Bingo. End of story. He is one of the first comic book superheroes that represented the Marvel Age of Heroes. Captain America, Human Torch, and Namor. And again, they were all coupled together in a brilliant series called The Invaders at the point where, as I covered in the Aquaman Prince Namor episode, that that Namor was really being tapped. He was like featured in three monthly books. He was super popular. They turned his own series kind of middling sales into an appearance in three different books. Well, today, today we are covering an all-new phenomenon, and that phenomenon is known as the Doom Patrol versus the X-Men, or the X-Men versus the Doom Patrol. This entire X-Men Doom Patrol comparison has been going on since I was a kid. I caught it early in the in the what when do you think? In the in the mid mid seventies, okay? When my, my exposure to both of these comics happened and a, a revival to both franchises was happening between nineteen seventy five and nineteen seventy seven. So that's how I was able to fly into the middle of this. Which I mean, I, I just I just had the very best time because I liked both teams a tremendous amount. But the Doom Patrol, you guys probably know as the Brendan Fraser voiced robot man you know uh it started on the dc app and now i believe it's on hbo max the live action doom patrol which more reflects kind of the the late late 80s early 90s iteration of this team but that's not how they were introduced the original version of the doom patrol uh was was debuted in a in a comic book called my Greatest Adventure. My Greatest Adventure. It was a DC comic book. It's My Greatest Adventure, number 80. It came out April 18th. It had a cover date of June 1963, but it came out April 18th, 1963. Now, I've, I've, you guys have, we've discovered, you know, cover dates versus, um, uh, uh, we've, we've discovered cover dates versus, uh, you know, street dates. The street date is what you want to go to. The cover date is when it kind of expires and they had to tear off the cover and send it back. The cover date is generally always three months after the street date. So that's why, of course, it has a street date of June when it came out in April. It's always three months in between consistently, especially during this time, carrying all the way through, you know, the end of the Silver Age through the Bronze Age. What is the giant connective tissue between these two franchises? So... Guy in a wheelchair and guy in a wheelchair. I'm just going to tell you that right now. That 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 is what it was about for years and years. Both guys in a wheelchair had um, what was called freaks, mutants, outcasts. Pick one. They were referred to as all three. The Doom Patrol had a man named that that was known as the Chief, and the Chief gathered uh, three freaks. Okay. Three people who had had terrible um, accidents that occurred to them, that altered them, and made them outcasts slash freaks. They did not have a mutant genome as the X-Men did. Um, and the X-Men, of course, would, uh, would, would arrive three months later. And, and, and so the fact that there is a DC comic book with a um, wheelchair-bound leader 
who guides and collected them. DC's his name, the chief, as you know. And then Marvel produces X-Men number one, which has Xavier and which has, uh, you know, his school for gifted youngsters, his school of mutants. And, you know, that comes out on July 2nd, 1963. I mean, these are literally April, May, May, June, June, July, boom, three months between them. Now, they are certainly very similar. And again, wheelchair guy is um, guiding group of outcasts slash freaks. This is how it was displayed and portrayed and communicated back then. And then Xavier in a wheelchair uh, guiding his mutants. His, his gifted mutants and, and, and it's not there that, 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 that's just, that is only, that is only the very beginning of what is going to be what I believe I'm going to bring to you because I've heard it. I'm going to bring to you the most in depth. I mean, we are going to really get around this today and I, uh, and here obviously from the creators themselves and we are going to, uh, you know, examine and bring to light where this, I mean, good God, 60 year rivalry this 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 uh idea and, and trust me over years it's it's even gotten more heated it hasn't abated even though obviously as as you can tell by the hitter there's a clear winner here and there is not one single article written or interview given or opinion shared that is not going to find the x-men as the overall the overall winner but i'm telling you man there are twists and turns to come as we discuss the doom patrol and the X-Men, and again, their 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 um their their debuts in the same calendar year. One's in spring, one's in summer. Now you can look back and go, well, you know, if the X-Men, which followed the appearance of the Doom Patrol, which because of the popularity, here's the deal. You know, the 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 whole the whole idea, and I'm I I I, I need to go back and focus more on the fact because I skipped by it pretty quick. The debut of the Doom Patrol was in My Greatest Adventure number 90, I'm sorry, number 80, number 80. My Greatest Adventure 80. They were so popular that they brought the Doom Patrol back and changed the name of My Greatest Adventure to the Doom Patrol. They just changed it. And this is common. Tales of Suspense becomes Captain America. Tales to Astonish Me. Marvel was doing it all the time. You know, Strange Tales becomes Doctor Strange. Do- DC and Marvel did this all the time. You know, Thor was not the original title of the book. They just segued it into Thor. I mean, it's 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 a... Uh, it's these transitionary titles where they take one and they go, well, this is what people are favoring. We probably need to have them find this um, by this name going forward. And boom, that, that's what happens. I mean, when 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 uh, X-Men Classic launched, it was called Classic X-Men. And it was called Classic X-Men for about two and a half, three years. Then the sales department came in and said, it would be better if the X was first. It was X-Men Classic. And boom, it became X-Men Classic, not Classic they didn't go back and re- renumber it and made X-Men Classic a new number one. They just continued. Classic X-Men 29 existed. X-Men Classic, you know, was the new title as of issue 30. Those are not exact titles. I just made those numberings up because I don't have it in front of me, but it's an example. My Greatest Adventure featured Doom Patrol. It was so popular, they made the comic book into the Doom Patrol. And so uh, the, the, the next kind of completely like how is this even possible is that only six issues into their run. So, so, you know, six issues after they debut, 
the Doom Patrol battles a group called the Brotherhood of Evil. The Brotherhood of Evil, okay? So you go, hey there, Brotherhood of Evil battling the Doom Patrol. Does that seem familiar to you? Have you have you kind of heard something that sounds like the Brotherhood of Evil before? Um, I mean, because because it 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 really is. It just it just gets weirder and weirder and weirder as we as we as we um you know go on down the line as we as we're going to draw one. This is not just one or two similarities. This is truly one of the m- most bizarre Marvel versus DC kind of comparisons that you're going that you're going to experience. Um, because again, after they, you know, appear and, and take over the book and, and make, make their, you know, make their mark. And, and, and my greatest adventure changes to the actual doom patrol title. Well, you know, then we're off to the races, but again, three months later, three months later, a guy in a wheelchair introduces a, you know, series of, outcast freaks slash, but we call them mutants. We actually have the luxury of calling them, you know, we call them mutants. So there, 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 there's already little differences that are, you know, differentiating them. I mean, there's certainly not an armored, there's not a robot man. Doom Patrol had a lasty girl. She could stretch. Not only could she stretch like Reed Richards, she could make herself, she could expand herself. A lasty just didn't mean rubber. It meant she could expand herself. And so she could be a giant and stomp through the city, just like, you know, attack of the 70 foot woman or the seven, 700 foot woman. Um, so elastic girl did more than just stretch, but that it was in her skill set. but she was big. Then there was negative man who would become this. Uh, he looked like the invisible man of the invisible man movies of the fifties and sixties wrapped in bandages, but he would, he, he, not expand. He would, uh, you know, summon this energy being of himself, like, a, like an electrical version of himself. Um, so you've got Robot Man, Negative Man, and Elasti Girl, okay? All headed by the chief who would put them in certain situations and, you know, uh, send them on missions. So, but again, they were these freaks in service of our leader, the chief, who was uh, in a wheelchair. And so down the line, you know, we find that the X-Men are going to come up against their own Brotherhood of Evil, except they're not the Brotherhood of Evil. They're the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. And you knew that already. I didn't even have to tell you. You already knew that. And 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 those appearances are, are um, extremely, extremely close because, because again, both of these books, neither of which are tearing up the charts, they're 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 both uh, more of a bi-monthly schedule, which allowed them to to, to kind of increase the drag in, in, in between them. Because again, neither of them are like paying all the bills at at, at the uh, at the publishing house. So what happens is, it, it's it's in. Uh, it's in, I believe, October, November of 1963, we are treated to, uh, is, is this the issue that we get the Doom Patrol in? Because my favorite adventure, again, like I said, it, it, it hadn't seen a comic book as popular or a feature as popular as Doom Patrol, so it was only natural that they, you know, broke out and immediately summoned the Doom Patrol 
as the as the as the lead of the book and look the thing that really unites both concepts is that neither in their inception in their first form neither of them was terribly popular and so what happened is they both kind of go well one gets canceled and one goes into permanent hiatus and uh and they also that happens at at at, at very much uh, a similar period of time again within a few months after a few years of trying both of these you know to, to get both of these to 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 get off the ground uh they, they decide to you know basically neither of these books are really working neither of these concepts are, are are really working and and so what they do is they you know as we know with x-men is you you avid leader readers listeners avid listeners of the Rob observations podcast know that x-men goes on hiatus and they make it a reprint book and they publish it bi-monthly just to keep the x-men as unique as, as it was that x-men trademark alive and so the doom patrol launches in april of 1963 and as i've already covered with you the uh the x-men launches in july they're three months apart uh the the Doom Patrol first encounters the Brotherhood of Evil. Okay? Yes, I told you this was going to get weird. In January of 1964. Now, the Brotherhood of Evil is a group, an evil, a villain, villainous group led by the brain. There is a talking, menacing ape, a gorilla named Monjo Mala. Monjo Mala. He talks, you know, in his accent. Over the time, they've had a ton of members. Gemini, Warp, Plasmus, Houngen, Phobia, Trinity, okay? General Immortus, Madame Rouge. Um, they're a cool, formidable team. But uh, let me tell you something. They are not the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Can If I told you that the Brotherhood of Evil and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants appeared in the exact same month, would you believe me? Because you better, because that's what happened. January of 1964, X-Men number four, because it is bi-monthly, okay? The X-Men debut in July. So by January of the following year, July 1963 gives us X-Men number one. January of 1964 brings us X-Men number four. And the what? The cover, on the cover is the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. In January... 1964 on the cover of the now pronounced Doom Patrol comic. I mean, we have we have left, you know, um, the 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 moniker behind, and now we are completely embracing the Doom Patrol, the Doom Patrol. So my my favorite story has become Doom Patrol, and it's Doom Patrol number 86, and the Brotherhood of Evil is on the cover. It's on the cover of Doom Patrol number 86. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, January 1964 finds Brotherhood of Evil Mutants and the Brotherhood of Evil making their simultaneous debuts in Freaky Deaky comics that are already super duper similar. Now, this is only the second appearance for the Doom Patrol and the fourth appearance for the X-Men. So even though the X-Men came out three months later, I told you that lag would kick in. And because they got the mail, they made the decision, they, 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 they shifted, boom. But the Brotherhood of Evil and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants are simultaneously featured in January 1964. I know you're asking, you're like, well, which one came first? Well, you know I'm going to tell you. And in this one, this is where things get even stranger. The X-Men... Number four with the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. 
who are Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver and Toad and um, Mastermind, all under the leadership of Magneto, who appears in X-Men number one. That appeared, that was that debuted on January 3rd, 1964. On January 23, January 23, 23rd of January, the Doom Patrol show up with the Brotherhood of Evil. There's no way that they could have imitated each other. The lead time just isn't there. And this is where the big thing that over the years they said, well, it's, it's difficult to conceptualize that Stan and Jack could have ripped off Doom Patrol because they would have they would literally have had to pick up the book and draw it within a matter of weeks and get it to the printer for in or, for in order to get it out in July. So let's say, you know, best case scenario, Stan picks up Doom Patrol in, you know, my favorite story and goes, "Hey, it's pretty great." Guy in a wheelchair leads a group of freaks and outcasts. I'm going to do that. Hey, Jack, we're doing this next. So then they would have to have that done by the middle of May in order for it to be out the first week of July, July 3rd. Again, this isn't the end of July. It was out the first week. So it was three calendar months, but really probably like roughly two months between the actual issues hitting late April, early July. So what's happened is that over the years and the last time that the author spoke about this, he actually had shifted his position and he firmly believes in his heart of heart, heart of hearts, um, Arnold Drake believes that uh, that Stanley took the inspiration for the X-Men from him. He, he says here in a 2007 interview, he says, they ask him, you know, do you think that Stan was influenced. He says, over the the years, um, I have become more and more convinced that Stan Lee knowingly stole the X-Men from the Doom Patrol. Arnold Drake wrote the first Doom Patrol story. So this is the writer of the Doom Patrol, creator of the Doom Patrol, saying that he now believes in 2007, that's when this interview is published, he believes that Stan Lee knowingly took the X-Men from the Doom Patrol. I didn't believe it in the beginning. Because the lead time was so short. So he again is acknowledging this window that I've talked to you guys about. And and again, it's it's even though it's even though it's April and and July, and again, you've got to go by the street dates. Do not go by the cover dates. The cover date will probably have you at June and September, but again, it's April and July. And uh that's July third. I mean, so so you know, the the first three days into July, boom, X-Men is published, which had to go to the press probably a month, five weeks in advance back in those days, and then get printed. And then the distribution network was slower than it was now. So it's probably even less. They probably they probably had to be in the printer at the, at the at very much in the in the middle of May, not the end of May, to get out in July, okay? So we don't have the speed of the delivery that they, that they had now, and there's certainly not as many, you know, avenues as we have now to get overnight shipments and the air... You know, stuff was was put on trucks and driven across country. So he says here, I didn't believe so in the beginning because the lead time was so short. But over the years, I have learned that an awful lot of writers and artists were working between the two offices of Marvel and DC. Therefore, from when I first brought the idea into DC editor Murray Boltonoff, it would have been easy for someone 
to walk over and, and maybe over here, this guy Drake is working on a story about a bunch of reluctant outcasts led by a man in a wheelchair. So over the years, I begin to feel that Stan had more lead time than I truly realized. He may well have had four, five, possibly six months. So, okay, so Arnold Drake dropping. Stan is alive at this point. I don't think Stan cares very much. I mean, 2007, we're already on our third X-Men. You know, there are any production on the fourth X-Men movie. The three, three X-Men films have come out. But Arnold Drake believes... Uh, then, then, and then he's asked, have you ever dealt directly with Stan? He goes, yeah, sure. <laughs> this is a great answer. I work for Marvel. I even wrote issues of X-Men in 1967. And he said, you know, wait a second. Like the question is posed to him, like, did, did you ever confront him directly? And he said, no. And Arnold Drake says, no. And he says, uh, you know, that, that he just felt like at the time, Getting a paycheck, writing the X-Men. Didn't want to didn't want to shake the trees. Happy to comply. Okay. Well, later on, he absolutely then tells you his influences for the Doom Patrol. So Arnold Drake, the creator of Doom Patrol, says, Look, I'm gonna tell you right now, I'll tell you how I created this team and who they're based on. He says, the chief is based on a cousin of mine who died fairly recently. His name was Sidney, and he was one of the last of the polio victims. He got it when he was three years old, which would have been somewhere around 1930. They were beginning to conquer the disease. Sidney had 10 or 12 operations on his legs. He wound up with only one uh, one leg. His left leg was three inches shorter than the right one. Despite that, and all the time that he had spent away from school, and all the loneliness that he had accompanied it, he got himself a degree during World War II, naturally they wouldn't draft him because of his leg condition, so he got a chemist degree, and he went to work at Westinghouse. He worked for them for about 25 years and did some really impressive and pioneering work. One assignment, he said, uh, we made a metal that we could not cut. We made it for rockets, and it met all of our needs, except we don't know how to cut the goddamn thing. We can't even cut it with diamonds, he said, his cousin said. Now his cousin, again, is the basis for the chief who is the leader of the Doom Patrol and is um, bound to his wheelchair. I mean, uh, he is reconciled to his, his, his wheelchair. He said he thought about it and they came up with a solution, which was controlled explosions would be able to slice the metal. Bit by bit, they blew the metal apart in a very straight line, and that's how they wound up cutting the metal. After Sidney had been there about 25 years, he went to create a work with the street kids who were the bastard sons of American soldiers and Korean girls. He wound up adopting 14 children. I was so impressed with him. He was a very impressive gentleman. The man in the wheelchair that we you know as chief is Sidney, my cousin. The reason I wanted a man in the wheelchair is that I had become aware from almost the outset of the comics that all kids want to emulate superheroes. They want to be the fastest or the strongest. And there wasn't anybody in the world who wanted to be the smartest. I decided I'd make a superhero for all the nerds of the world. So, again, speaking to that the leader and the big brain behind both Xavier, Xavier's X-Men and the Chief's Doom Patrol, the, the, the guy in the wheelchair is, is generally the smartest guy in the world. I mean in the room, at the very least, the smartest guy in the room. Certainly, Xavier has been known as the most powerful uh, mutant mind at different times in the world. He's had all, all manner of challenges, but the chief, that was his thing. He was super smart, and he, you know, naturally, uh, uh, you know, gathered the Doom Patrol together in order to do these, you know, uh, 
uh, basically, the, the Doom Patrol was more than a super team. They didn't. They weren't. They weren't crime fighters. They were more. Um, what, what the Doom Patrol was was uh, was was a group of adventurers. And so here's the deal. Back in the day, given the three month, you know, in between, and I'm going to give you a really quick answer because this is how Stan says. Stan said that he believed when asked if the Doom Patrol had influenced if the Doom Patrol had influenced uh, the X-Men Stan said I, th- I thought the Doom Patrol was a ripoff of the Fantastic Four which had predated him by a year almost a year and so Stan is looking at it like you created a quartet of characters with a super smart guy at the helm a stretch guy I mean a, a, a woman who could stretch a strong guy, which we've talked here at the comic books, strong guy was a motif. Colossus was supposed to be the breakout character on the X-Men. Strong guy. The Thing was the breakout character. You know, strong guy. Hulk was the breakout character on the Defenders. Strong guy. The strong guy was the motif. Many times on the Avengers, when Thor, Cap, and Iron Man were in the book, Thor was at the front and center running towards you or flying towards you with his hammer. Strong guy. Strong guy was a motif that publishers, especially comic book publishers, um, naturally lent themselves to. And uh, again, um, the chief had a name. His name was Niles Calder. I'm sorry I didn't mention that earlier. But again, Robot Man, Elastigirl, Negative Man. Negative Man with his, you know, expulsion. That's what I was looking for earlier. He, his expulsion of a, of a lightning energy being kind of looked the way that energy was formed. You could see the earliest incarnations of Human Torch when he was kind of a flying, you know, flame. So, so they, uh, they absolutely, you know, I think, I feel like Stan had some ground to stand on here. Robot Man, the thing, negative man, human torch, Elastigirl had kind of Reed Richards powers and then Reed Richards mind was represented with the chief. So Stan just said, I I figured the Doom Patrol was stealing from Fantastic Four. How could the X-Men be based on the Doom Patrol and the Doom Patrol are based on the Fantastic Four? Great answer. And, uh, and, 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 and I think, look, nobody has been on record in all this time of ever saying and having known Jack and spoken to Jack, it's not like he said, oh, yeah, we were doing the Doom Patrol. Uh, the X-Men, it just has this uncanny, the two guys leading them in wheelchairs who happen to be the formidable leader types, both in wheelchairs, both outcast freaks in, in Marvel's case, identified as mutants. Um, and, and again, they were more or less a group of adventurers. He, he, the chief gathered them be- together at, because they were, you know, all oddballs. Again, freaks, outcasts. Now I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to jump right in here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to tell you one of the greatest. So, so they appear in 1963. But what happens is that, uh, that, that much, much, much later on, you know, Almost 30 years later, not quite, 27 years later, Grant Morrison gives you the Doom Patrol version that you're, you're seeing on HBO Max, the televised version with Brandon Fraser. Okay, that version of the, in that version of the Doom Patrol, Grant Morrison reveals that the accidents that caused all of the Doom Patrol, that the chief was behind each of them. So he created each of their freakish outcasts, outcast elements. So again, Apologies in advance. I should have said a spoiler warning. But that is what uh, Grant Morrison established 
in his run was to reveal that the chief was quite a sinister guy and that the chief had been the one. I mean, imagine if you could create a guy who had manipulated a spider to bite, you know, Spider-Man and, 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 and nudged Hulk into the nuclear site and convinced Reed and the group to get on the rocket. And you've got, you know, uh, you're going to say, Rob, you've got the basis of Marvels by, you know, Busick and Alex Ross. Well, that is the very direct motive that he gave. I'm just scratching the surface here. You should read the book and find out. But it was one of those great, like, oh, wow. So so to, in order to lead this crazy group, this is a Grant Morrison. Now, again, writers come in. They establish things. Grant Morrison also went on the X-Men and established really kind of severe applications to Magneto and introduced this mysterious character. And then Marvel certainly seemed to like it at the time. That editorial group seemed to like it the the, the Bill Jemis, Joe Quesada regime, and then almost immediately divorce themselves from this idea. They immediately uh, look up Zorn, X-O-R-N, and you'll see purged it, purged it from the timeline, didn't go for it. But occasionally, like something like giving per- Charles Xavier this sinister sister, Cassandra Nova, which Grant Morrison did in his very first issue of X-Men. Sometimes, you know, you introduce some, something, it sticks. Sometimes it doesn't. And, and yet in this, again, iteration of the Doom Patrol, you know, down the line, I thought it was very interesting that having that reveal. Now, I don't know how canon it is. I don't know. I didn't follow the Doom Patrol post that, but that is a storyline that it, that it appeared in 1988, 89, 90, that revealed a, a decidedly different uh, kind of twist in the Doom Patrol's history. But again, getting back to the Brotherhood of Evil, the Brotherhood of Evil mutants both uncannily appearing in the same month, actually, in this one, Marvel beats it. Brotherhood of Evil, Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. So, neither series does well. They're both dialed down. Marvel's is turned into a reprint book where they just reprint earlier Adventures of X-Men so as to not continue uh, publishing new material until they decide to do Giant Size X-Men number one. And you guys know, based on all my different podcasts, I mean, that was a mind-blowing, absolutely radical, you know, radically charged reimagination of the X-Men, giving them this international group because the original X-Men have gone missing. They, they have been abducted. They are on the island of Krakoa. And what happens is Xavier has to travel the world. And uh, in fact, you know, uh, in fact, you know, get a new team. Earlier on, I said that, you know, 86 was the second appearance of the Doom Patrol. That's not correct. 80, issue 82 of My Greatest Adventure was the second issue, and they started moving towards naming the book The Doom Patrol. So, again, course correcting within my own podcast. The uh, What happens after 1975 and the relaunch of the new X-Men and the international X-Men, the Russian Colossus, the Canadian Wolverine, the return of the Irish Banshee, Japanese, Sunfire, African, Storm, German, Nightcrawler, uh, American Indian, Warpath. I mean, they really did. They built out a really phenomenal international cast. Well, it works. People dig it. It's it's buzzing. The industry's going. They immediately, instead of, as as you've known, as I've I've covered in some of my Secret History of Comics, instead of doing another giant size X-Men number two, I covered this uh, several episodes back, that Marvel said we should just go straight to series and feature these new X-Men and, 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 and get them out there. And it worked. And then again, you get somebody like a John Byrne and Terry Austin who were brought in to increase the book's you know, appeal. And they did. And the book goes monthly. And the X-Men never looks back. And, and, and John Byrne is brought on the X-Men in 1977. 
So, I mean, it is, they are, they are often cooking. Well, I am wandering to the newsstand one day in 1977, and there is another book like DC's, you know, My Favorite Story. DC and Marvel had a lot of these different books that they, Marvel did Marvel Premiere. They did Marvel Spotlight that would routinely feature secondary characters, new characters. It was kind of a, uh, for lack of a better term, and I'm going to use it right now because DC, DC's actually was called this, a showcase. DC had a long-standing comic book called DC Showcase, and DC Showcase would take concepts, characters, maybe secondary, new characters, and put them in different story arcs. Well, I am holding in my hands DC Showcase number 94. And it is drawn. The cover is outstanding. I would flip out if I ever saw the original art to this. Jim Aparo is one of my favorite artists. I don't talk about him enough. But um, I own Aparo art. I, I own his Aquaman stuff. I've talked about in the last episode that year, 1977, when Aquaman was its absolute best. It got dark. It got it got very dramatic. It got serious. It was consequential. Uh, that The artist on that was Jim Aparo. He will always be the Aquaman guy to me. Simultaneously, Jim Aparo was doing a monthly Batman title called Brave and the Bold. He would come what may, Jim Aparo would, would would draw it if it was Batman and Zatanna, Batman and Aquaman, Batman and Sergeant Rock, Batman and Wildcat. Jim Aparo was the monthly artist. It was their version of Marvel Team-Up, was DC's Brave and the Bold. That's what it turned out to. Jim Aparo uh, is in many ways, uh, because he was also involved with Batman when they broke his back with Bane, he continued on. He was, uh, you know, huge, hugely influential. The death of Robin. He became more associated with Batman than maybe anybody outside of Neil Adams. But I am holding a comic. DC, DC Showcase Presents number 94, which has this amazing Jim Apparel piece of artwork. And, and there is a there is a stone, you know, uh, they're, they're stand, this, this group of people are, are uh, standing in a graveyard. There's a, there's a headstone that says Doom Patrol R.I.P. Behind it is what looks like negative girl. Looks like negative man is a girl. There is a strong African-American in a, in a red and yellow costume. And there is a uh, kind of a more sexy female version in, in, in a dress with two thigh slits. And it's a cool design. And then there is a new version of Robot Man holding the empty shell of a former Robot Man body. And it says, from the ashes of the old, a new team shall be born. The all-new Doom Patrol. To my eyes, as I look at this in 1977, I go, hot diggity damn. This looks like DC's answer to the X-Men. Well, I open it up and Joe Staten, who had... Uh, really uh, had his had his start uh, doing a book called E-Man, which, which would go on to feature the very first earliest work of Mr. John Byrne. Joe Staten and, and John Byrne had a, had a similar, in my opinion, they had a similar stylistic bend. They had a similar kind of not quite cartoony, not quite realistic, and I dug it, and I liked everything. I bought everything that Joe Staten did, and uh, he is the artist behind this amazing Jim Apero cover. And it's got this new team running at you. It's got Robot Man and the negative 
woman and and this strong african-american guy and this beautiful female with the dress and the two slits and it robot man has his has his logo over him and then it says in introducing tempest who is our african-american celsius who is the beautiful woman with the two slits and and what dress slits thigh high slits exposing almost her full legs on each side very sexy you know intended to be sexy costume uh, somewhere between a Storm design and a Jean Grey Phoenix design is, is what I would tell you how it read to me. And then, of course, Negative Woman. But uh, again, I first came to know the work of Joe Staten uh, while he was doing a book called E-Man for Charlton Comics. And John Byrne had done a backup feature of a robot character that had become a signature character for him in his fanzines. He uh, and his friends Bob Layton and Roger Stern had done a fanzine called Contemporary pictorial literature they had published their own little fan magazine called cpl contemporary pictorial literature and in that was the first appearance of raj 2000 which was a very unique cool design one of those again we talk about it all the time we see boba fett boom immediately you go that's a cool design i like that you see darth vader you know walk walk onto the rebel ship in the first opening minutes of star wars 1977 and you go oh my gosh he looks amazing you know you see darth maul you go boom i instantly have a connection he looks amazing. Visuals matter. Visual representation matters. Pictures matter. And Raj 2000 is one of the coolest looking robotic characters ever. And and one thing that every John Byrne fan will tell you, and we don't talk about this enough, he, John Byrne tech, John Byrne machinery, John Byrne robots had a distinct style. He had a distinct way of depicting robots, machinery, tech. People dug it. I dug it. It's very, very identifiable. Well, Robot Man looks visibly like raj 2000 like like they borrowed that's the thing that stops me i've already seen raj 2000 in some of these backup features in charlton comics and it's 1977 almost 1978 and it appears that dc is going to uh, going to attempt to do the same thing and they do they are trying to absolutely replicate the success that marvel had with the new x-men with this showcase uh feature that is you know the all-new Doom Patrol. So they're they're leaning back into the fact that they believe that Doom Patrol had this territory first, and now that the X-Men has taken off again, they want to throw their hat in the ring and and dance, uh, you know, and dance with with uh, with the new X-Men and try and do the new Doom Patrol and see if they can also get lightning in a battle, <laughs> lightning in a bottle, lightning in a bottle. So um. Look, Paul Coverberg, the writer of this, has said since, I'm not proud of it. We were trying to, you know, uh, uh, replicate uh, what Marvel was doing with the X-Men. He says, the original group were outsiders and freaks. Again, so I'm using these words that I think are not woke and not okay. But again, I'm telling you verbiage and language that was spoken to me and, 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 and verbiage and language that I read, descriptions of the characters that I had at the time. You know, again, when they called them freaks, they called them outcasts. Um, Paul Coverberg is speaking of his time doing this book and he's saying the same thing. The original group were outsiders and freaks. My guys were more like comic book superheroes. I was a young and superior writer, new to writing and only two years under my belt. If that, uh, the new doom patrol team was led by Celsius, the sexy female, uh, whose name was Arani Desai. And it was revealed that she was the wife that we had never seen of the chief. And uh, she creates the new Doom Patrol in order to save herself from the 
threat of General Immortus, who is a great villain. And I'm going to get more on General Immortus shortly. Uh, the new robot man is surviving his older body in this new Raj 2000 body. So they just, hence why he is holding his old shell of a body on the cover to showcase, DC Comics showcase number 94. So uh, this this three-issue tryout that covers Doom Patrol 94, 95, 96 didn't have the same reaction that they had been helping with Negative Women, with Tempest. Um, uh, uh, the Negative Woman was Russian, okay? Again, um, you know, and then Joshua Clay uh, is, is uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Tempest is Joshua Clay, Celsius is the chief's wife, and then our Russian is Negative Woman. And Joshua Clay is a Vietnam deserter uh, who is able to emit energy blasts from his hands. And uh, so anyway, they, uh, you know, they were kind of cycled out. They appeared in a few more comic books in the 80s. They were, they, they, they did a couple appearances. They were in DC Comics Presents. They fought alongside uh, Superman. Later, they would be brought back with, with um, Paul Coverberg and a really great art team in Steve Lytle and then later Eric Larson. But they still could not make, no matter what, they could not make uh, these characters click. They could not make them. And, and, and trust me, when Steve Lytle and Eric Larson were illustrating Doom Patrol, it was a really fun, very, I mean, it had a lot of Marvel energy. It was a very well-produced book, but the characters just did not take, they did not connect with the audience. The next time we would see them post the late 80s revival, this is 1977, when for three issues they tried to capture that same lightning in a bottle. Now, here's where I'm going deeper. And again, I've mentioned Raj 2000s a, a couple of times. I don't really normally... People don't really hit this note when I when I, I read the history of D Doom Patrol. I am holding in my hands, and I will I will have this uh, featured as one of the pictures on our podcast, and I'll use it for the promotion of this episode. Comic Reader, published October 1977, number 149. The Comic Reader was a little kind of a three quarters size of a regular comic book. It was smaller, cheaper to produce. It was monthly in comic stores. That Comic Reader covered. Comics that were coming out, it would give you listings, descriptions of everything coming out from all the publishers. It generally had a syndicated comic strip that they paid for the rights. In this particular issue, it is a Howard the Duck strip. It gives some history of comics, but it always had a really cool fan favorite artist, George Perez, John Byrne, Marshall Rogers, um, produce a cover. The cover to this comic reader is Raj 2000, the John Byrne Charlton um comic character that would later go on to have all his backup features that were featured in Charlton collected in one magazine size edition. It's amazing. Raj 2000 was published by Pacific Comics. It was a standalone special. If you go on eBay and you can Google Raj 2000, you'll find it. It collects all of the John Byrne Raj 2000 stories and a new one to boot. And I highly recommend it. It's It's got a wraparound cover featuring terrific John Byrne art. It was published at the absolute height of John Byrne's appeal in the early 80s. But this comic reader is from 1977. It is signed John Byrne, 1977. It is an excellent, oh my gosh, excellent depiction. Raj, Raj 2000 is walking from right to left, and he is passing a mirror, and in the mirror is the DC Robot Man. So this is the, the, the first time that we are seeing John Byrne do a published DC superhero in its Robot Man, the Joe Staten, and also on the cover, Jim Aparo, Robot Man, that is based on his Raj 2000 that I thought so. I it, it hit me when I looked at it. When I saw the cover, 
you know, to, to DC showcase number 94. I was like, what? Now I, I highly recommend DC showcase 94, 95, 96. These, these doom patrol issues, they're fun books. They're, they're really fun. Just the, even, even though the fact that they didn't break out, doesn't mean that, that they were not well-produced and exciting comics with great Jim Apero covers on all three of them. But none of them are as dramatic and cool as this with the RIP, you know, headstone, Deadpool, I mean, Deadpool, <laughs> headstone in the funeral, um, RIP, Doom Patrol, and the new team being introduced. I loved it. I couldn't get enough of this. I was so sad. Again, back in those days, there was no previews catalog. It didn't show you whether they were coming or they were going. But when you look inside this book, Joe Staten is 100% drawing a Raj 2000 style robot from his buddy who used to have this as a... Raj 2000 was a backup feature in a book Joe Staten did for Charlton called E-Man, 1975-1976. Now he is drawing Robot Man as John Burns' Raj 2000. And so on this comic reader cover, Raj 2000 is looking in the mirror and the reflection looking back at him, mimicking him, mimicking his mo his gesture and his motion, is the Doom Patrol Robot Man. And the there's a caption, a word balloon coming out of John Burns' signature, and it says, okay... So I'm sincerely flattered. So John Byrne is acknowledging. And what did John Byrne go on to do? He went on to transform the X-Men and make it the worldwide sensation that it is. And so his original robot character that he debuted in Charlton, well, actually in a fanzine that I told you, CPL, is now being the, is the basis for DC, who is rebooting Doom Patrol, trying to capture the same lightning in, in the bottle that Marvel did with the giant size X-Men. It's an international team. It's newly refurbished. And, I mean, it doesn't get weirder and more crazy than that. We've already had the Brotherhood of Evil and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants debuting in the exact same month. We've already got these, these concepts debuting the same year within seasons of each other. And again, the X-Men became the global worldwide phenomenon that never looked back. And the Doom Patrol continues to be the little engine that could. But along the way are all these incredible, just just amazing similarities uh and 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 uh and again we heard arnold drake tell you i read to you from that interview he believes stan took the concept i'm not so sure i'm gonna stick the landing on that one stan's rebuttal that well i thought doom patrol was a rub off of fantastic four has some merit as well so you've got this battle you know back and forth of ideas concepts the, 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 the idea that the, that the lead time is questionable. But then again, in 1977, you do see DC blatantly trying, like, well, if our failed concept can get rebooted the way their failed concept did, then we'll be sitting pretty. And that is exactly what they attempted to do. Again, I highly recommend these Doom Patrols. The, uh, the, the uh, issue uh, 94, 95, 96, they are on my spinner rack. They are always on my spinner rack. These are... I love these covers. I love the Joe Staten. Uh, to a kid, you just run with your imagination. And there's fun. There's good action. Paul Coverberg shouldn't be embarrassed just because it doesn't work. I mean, it's a great opening splash page. And then again, they they sum up what's going on. You've got Robot Man's old body being pulled from the water by a mysterious um, uh, uh, figure. Then uh, then later, we see this, this um, heavily coated figure, the way Ben Grimm used to put on his heavy coat and pants and go out and his hat covering his face the way Kirby would would, would uh, depict him. And, 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 and he takes off his coat, and you see it's this new Raj 2000 body on Robot Man. Then he meets the rest of the Doom Patrol that have been summoned by Celsius, and we meet Negative Woman, we meet Tempest, and then Celsius, you know, confesses to them everything that's going on, gives them the fate of the previous Doom Patrol, and then they are attacked 
you know, uh, by by General Immortus. So where this in between gets spin up into a lather, and where it really is the first place that I learned so much of the history is right early on in the run by Marv Wolfman and George Perez by the book that saved DC Comics, that is George's own words, and he's not lying, the new Teen Titans that he and Marv launched uh, in 1980. Going into their second year, they did a crossover which reintroduced General Immortus and Madame Rouge. And one year prior, in the pages of X-Men 141 and 142, the classic Days of Future Past storyline, we meet the all-new Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. That introduced us to Avalanche. It introduced us to Destiny. It introduced us to Pyro. It um, reintroduced us to Blob, who hadn't been seen in the run in a long time, and Mystique from the 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 Ms. Marvel comic pivots in to become the leader of the brand-new Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. They give the X-Men the business. They are instantly, to this fan's eyes, the most exciting new collection of villains. I love Pyro. I love Avalanche. I, I love Destiny. I already was aware of Blob. I knew of Mystique from his Marvel. I mean, I was just flipping out. Roughly 18 months later, George and Marv do a storyline, and it's got a great cover. It's, it's some of the best, uh, you know, it, it is, it, it is I, as I've learned over, over my time, uh, people really favor this, this Teen Titans storyline above all else. They, they think it is, uh, they think it is one of the best stories that George and Marv ever produced literally it is new teen titans issue 13 the uh the titans are are cyborg and uh and robin and kid flash are in the jungles and they're shining a lot shining a light on a figure that is hanging from all these dangling from these vines that it's wrapped up in and it says now begin the quest for the killers of the legendary doom patrol and it's got robot man's body there and it says trespassers will be executed they did a three issue madame rouge general immortus and the brand new brotherhood of evil which introduces so many of the new members of brotherhood of evil so again this is right on the heels of days of future past and it's semi keeping all of this very competitive nurturing going i mean the doom patrol and the x-men are just continue to kind of echo one after the other um and, and again, this is where we meet Plasmus and Houndgun and Phobia and Warp. And, and, and I'm telling you, George and Marv rose to the occasion. This Titans story in 13, 14, 15 of the new Titans that, that brings the Doom Patrol back into focus because Changeling was a, as Beast Boy, was affiliated with the earliest of the Doom Patrol comic books in the first run before it was powered down. And canceled again. X Men kept being published on a bi-monthly basis to keep the trademark alive as a reprint book, reprinting earlier books. The Doom Patrol they just turned the lights off and canceled it. So Beast Boy has a natural connection to all the Doom Patrol characters, and now that he's become Changeling as part of the New Titans, it was a great pivot. It was it is one of if not the best Teen Titan stories they ever published. It was rich with drama, consequence, um, just rich character conflict. But again, that roared the Doom Patrol back into the public consciousness and the Brotherhood of Evil as opposed to the Brotherhood of Evil mutants. And people in the stores are like, hey, what's up with this Titans having the Brotherhood of Evil? That's like the Brotherhood of Evil mutants. And then fanzines, comic book, um, the Comics Journal, Amazing Heroes, all of these different uh, comic book 
fanzine or or magazines that covered the comic book industry. They sensed meat on the bone and they gave histories of this. They they did um, early versions of what I'm giving you now, but again, giving you today Arnold Drake's version of this, the Raj 2000 aspect of this, which kind of slips the John Byrne X-Men run into this, the yin and the yang, the, the Jim Apero, Joe Staten, you know, international Doom Patrol in 1977 and the DC showcase issues as, as DC tries to reboot their Doom Patrol to match Marvel's X-Men. It is rich with comparisons, with similarities to wheelchair-bound leaders, super smart, bright, uh, full of charisma, would direct the missions, and, 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 and again, where the X-Men weren't traditional superheroes neither were the doom patrol they were more adventurers so tried to cover as much of it as possible the 80s the perez wolfman stuff really shined a brand new light on it which i believe did set the stage for the steve Lytle, eric larson version of this team which is actually my favorite they put all of that out in an omnibus last year the uh Lytle, larson all of this stuff that I've been the 70s, 80s stuff is all in one giant, magnificent, glorious omnibus, which is right over to my left. I look at it all the time. It never leaves here. It's fantastic. You should get it. Eric Larson, before his Marvel career exploded, was crushing it over on this Doom Patrol. Steve Lytle passed away a year ago, a little over a year ago. One of the best, did a huge, tremendously influential, influential run on the Legion and then pivoted with the Doom Patrol and really never did interior comics again, became a cover artist, but he is magnificent. One of the finest uh, storytellers and beautiful, beautiful people, beautiful men, women. Um, again, he, he, he has long since passed this earth, but he left behind a beautiful body of work. The Doom Patrol, one, two, three, his early first three to four issues are some of his finest work. He says he didn't like the direction or he couldn't make the deadlines, whatever it was the case, Eric Larson was brought in and that run is spectacular. The Doom Patrol and the X-Men. The X-Men kind of became kind of the biggest thing in comics and the Doom Patrol never truly took flight. That is not to say that they weren't um, kind of strangers in the night. Ships passing in the harbor, definitely similarities. The Brotherhood of Evil and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants thing is freaky deaky. The same January 1964, both. I mean, come on. And then Arnold Drake saying, hey, in the year since... I mean, 2007, he decided to clear his voice and say, Stan took it from me. Stan said, no, actually, you took, <laughs> he said, you took my thing. You took the Fantastic Four. So, you know, uh, Marvel versus DC, round two, wrapping it up. Drew as many conclusions as we could. Try and gave you some good interviews, some good insights, some good parallels, connected so many of the dots. Marvel and DC, our series will continue. Who will be up next. Stay tuned so that you will be the first to find out. Wow, did I go along with today's show. You guys, sorry. I I, 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 I have a penchant lately of, 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 of taking the show a little longer than I am accustomed to. But hey, we are going to get out of here um, today and revisit you uh, with, with, with a great upcoming episode continuing our series of Marvel vs. DC. You guys know where to find me. I am all over the internet. I am on Twitter at Robert Liefeld, R-O-B-E-R-T-L-I-E-F-E-L. D on Twitter, on Instagram. I am at Rob Liefeld. Please find me on both those platforms. I love talking to you guys, hearing your comments, your DMs, your mentions. I, I try and um, always, I'm a, I'm a chatty Kathy. I love talking to you guys. I think most of you guys know this, so reach out, hang with me, and, and, and I'll, I'll always try uh, my best to communicate with you 
as succinctly as quickly as I possibly can. Thank you for always talking to me on those platforms on Twitter at Robert Liefeld on Instagram at Rob Liefeld. This podcast has a dedicated Facebook page. Rob Observations with Rob Liefeld has a Facebook page. You can like it. You can comment on it. Um, I'd love to hear from you guys over there. I'll find your comment. I'll like your um, your, your, your comment. I, I will interact with you as best and as quickly as I possibly can. The best way to interact with me on, on, on Facebook is one of our groups. It's the only group I have. It's called Rob Liefeld and Extreme Group. It is moderated by myself and a gentleman named Terry Sala, S-A-L-A. That is how you know you have found the right group. There are other Liefeld groups. This group is run by me, administered by myself and Terry. We will be the ones that approve you and get you through. Um, obviously, in 36 years of a comic book career, I have covered a lot of characters, titles, stories. We share all of them. Um, if, I, if I drew it, if I wrote it, if I created it, if I published it, it's, it's fair game. We discuss it there. Jump on over to Rob Liefeld and Extreme Group on Facebook. We'd love to see you. And and there's, I mean, there's that place is hopping 24-7. It's, 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 an, it's exciting. I'm on there each and every day. Hope to see you there. At the end of every show, I ask you guys how you're doing. I hope you're doing well. And, and, I, and I speak to the fact that you need to feed your mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual selves. And the way that I recommend doing that in these crazy, crazy times is kicking back, uh, opening your mind to something fun, something creative. You know, maybe you're going to draw, maybe you're going to make your own comic, maybe you're going to read a fun comic, you're going to grab a collection off the shelf. You know, you heard about Daredevil Born Again. So like so many other people, you're you're reading that Frank Miller run either again or for the first time. Watch a great show. There's so much great stuff to watch and to stream. Go to a movie. Go on a date. Hang out with your friends. Have a pizza. Have a hamburger. Have a taco. Have an enchilada. Have sushi. Okay? Do Chinese food, Japanese food, Korean barbecue. I just, you know, have a Hershey's peanut butter cup. I have one a day. There, you learned something new about me right there. I have one Reese's peanut butter cup a day. I do. I love it. It is the highlight of my day as soon as I have um, kind of engulfed it and made it vanish. Um, immediate sadness follows. Okay. But guys, take care of yourselves. Have fun. Kick back. Take a deep breath. Um, make sure that you are accounting for you in the best possible way. And if that means having a great meal with friends or watching a movie with buddies or just reading a comic book, taking some me time, it's necessary. Um, I'm rooting for you. I'm always rooting for you. I, I only project what I do myself. So you guys, take care of yourselves. Please make sure to swing on by, you know, drive by the cul-de-sac as soon as you possibly can because I'm going to be here waiting for you and we're going to talk again real soon. 